Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. It is Wednesday evening, December the 21st, 2022. Welcome back to our Revelation class. Tonight we're actually going to get into some scriptures, and then next week we will start with chapter 1. When we actually start with the chapters from the beginning, uh, Brother Glenn Holmes is going to read each chapter for us before we discuss it. Are we projecting? Um, Can you dim some of these lights, please? Wrong direction. Because if it's too bright, you can't see the, the slides. I encourage you to go out to the website if you haven't already and download these slides as we, as we go through the classes. Tonight's slides are already on the website if you'd like a copy of them. A gentleman asked me a question two Sundays ago and I do not see him here tonight. So I guess I can't answer his question. Okay, we'll, we'll catch him next week maybe. Tonight we're going to talk about the the tribulation. How do you prove what the tribulation is in the book of Revelation? Lots of opinions out there, lots of theories, but in our case we need to be able to prove it because remember we're going to be talking to premillennialists. When they come up to us and they start telling us their premillennialistic views, we're going to have to be able to counter it and we're going to have to be able to prove it from Revelation itself. Otherwise, we're not going to do any good. There are two, two branches of premillennialism. I've already mentioned this before. There is the branch of predicting the end of times, and there's the branch of the afterlife. And I mentioned Apologetics Press seems to be focused mainly on the prediction of the end of, end of time. That doesn't interest me the way the afterlife does. The end of time has proven over and over again to be false. The doctrine of the afterlife is dangerous. If you teach the doctrine of the premillennialistic afterlife as truth, and if you follow it as truth, you will not make it to heaven. There is no way. Because the the tribulation and premillennialism denies the very thing that's going to get you into heaven, and that is the blood of the Lamb. Both the predicting of the end of time and the afterlife doctrine uses the same book, Revelation. They use the same terminology and the same unsubstantiated claims. We are going to focus in this class mainly on, well, solely on the afterlife. Okay, so, all these denominations are promoting premillennialism. Who are they? I'm going to, I'm going to give you the top four over the past 20, 30 years, this has been my observation. I may, and it may, not be, may not be correct. If I'm not correct, correct me and I will stand corrected. 
I don't know about these first two, so I gave them tying with, in fourth place. The Presbyterians and the Baptists both teach some type of premillennialism. I did not realize until just a few years ago that the Baptists actually did that. I have a friend who attends one of the Baptist churches here in town, and she posted on her Facebook page some premillennialistic stuff one time. And that surprised me. I didn't realize the Baptists were into it. I know the Presbyterians are, and apparently the Baptists are to an extent. So I'm going to give them and the Presbyterians honorable, honorable mention in, in fourth place. Third place is going to be a surprise. It's the Roman Catholic Church. The reason I gave them third place is because of a Bible class I had years ago. Back when Tracy and I first got married, we went to Mayfair. And there was, there was a guy who attends Mayfair. He's actually a rocket scientist, believe it or not, an actual true blue rocket scientist. He taught a class having something to do with where history meets the Bible. He was taking events in the Bible and comparing them with what was going on in secular history at the time. One of the things that he mentioned, and I have no reason to doubt his research, he said that back during the Crusades, the Roman Catholic Church used the tribulation as a way of raising funds for the Crusades. He said that he's... Well, actually, they don't use the word tribulation. What they say is the tribulation is the time of cleansing or purgation. That's where they get the word purgatory. What, what they would do, the Catholic priests would go around to the houses and the villages and ask to speak to one of the family members and say, we have discovered that one of your distant relatives on your father's, uncle's, brother's side is stuck in purgatory and cannot get out. With a little bit of money and a little bit of praying, we think we can get him out of purgatory and on into heaven. So, of course, they, they, they cough up the money, and the priest goes back with the money. A few weeks later, they would come back to the same person and say, okay, we're almost there. Just a little bit more money and a little bit more praying, and I guarantee you they're going to get out of purgatory this time. So they cough up some more money, and sure enough, the priest comes back and says, we got him out. A few months later, that same priest is going to come back and talk to another family member and say, hey, you've got somebody on your mother's side of the family that is in purgatory with a little bit of money, a little bit of prayer, and it, the, the cycle repeats itself. And according to this teacher, they actually use that as one of the ways to raise money for the Crusades. So for that reason, we'll give the Roman Catholic Church spot number three. Now... Leaving the Roman Catholic Church and the Presbyterians and the Baptists in the dust are the Methodists. There's only one organization that I have found that is more pro-premillennialistic than the Methodist. They have it in their doctrines and they have it in the songs they wrote. Not all Methodist songs are, have error in them. Some do. A lot of the songs we sing are actually written by Methodists. I don't know if you realize that or not. Sometimes go home and just start researching the names of all the people of your favorite songs and see, see what their background is. The Methodists are very heavy into premillennialism. Number one, number one leaves everybody behind. These guys not only teach, teach premillennialism, they eat it, sleep it, drink it, 
They even invented. Um, there are some people that are associated with the churches of God and some organizations that are loosely coupled with them actually define what premillennialism is. When I talk about the loosely associated organizations, I'm talking like the Trinity Broadcast Network with Paul Crouch, uh, Jimmy Swaggard, especially John Hagee, and top of the list, hands down, top of the list, is Jack Benepe. Jack Benepe, I, know, I noticed, died a few years ago. He, is, he has lots of, lots of his programs, I believe, are on YouTube. I've seen a few. I mentioned back in the first lesson that when, when the premillennialists tried to fix the contradiction between Armageddon and the thousand-year reign, you know, Armageddon is chapter 16, thousand-year reign is chapter 20. If the earth is destroyed in 16, how are you going to have a thousand-year reign on that same earth in chapter 20? When they, <laughs> yeah, I noticed that that kind of upset you last week. Yeah, it upsets me too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, yeah. What was I saying? Oh, whenever they decided that the thousand year reign was going to occur on that planet that was 350 or 400 million light year or whatever, however many light years away, the first I heard of it was a person guest starring on Jack Benefee's Sunday morning TV program. And apparently this guy had some inside connection with the committee that actually, that actually defines what premillennialism is. And even the Methodists seem to follow the Church of God uh, lead on this. So, we discussed the tribulation last week. You, you know basically what premillennialism teaches. The question is, what does the book of Revelation teach? There's only really four options. Either the, either the tribulation and revelation is what the premillennialists teach. It's the persecution of the first century church. It's the destruction of Jerusalem, or it cannot be determined. And until I had my first revelation class, because of the silence of the church on the book of Revelation, I thought it could not be determined. That, that, was, that was my stance of it. How are we going to determine what the tribulation says, what the tribulation means? In the book of Revelation, we have the word tribulation that shows up several times. This is the Greek word here, and it's transliteration. This Greek word and a form of it will appear about 45 times in the New Testament, according to Strong's Concordance in BibleHub.com. You can go to any one of these locations and say, oh, that's what this verse says the tribulation is, so that must be what Revelation is teaching. You can't do that. Because as soon as you go to one verse, I'm going to go to another one, and my opinion is it's going to be just as valid as yours. You cannot determine what the tribulation and Revelation is by just going to some other verse in some other book and just picking out and say, oh, that's what it is. We're going to have to let the book of Revelation define the term for us. The way we're going to prove what Revelation says about the tribulation is going to come in two proofs. Proof number one, we're going to look at seven characteristics that the book of Revelation has for the tribulation. This is going to come from chapters 1, 6, 7, and 20. Get my chart, my page here turned. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
We're going to read each one of these verses. Now, there's going to be three characteristics that come from this verse. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. We have three characteristics in this verse. First of all, the word am. The word am is actually not found in the original Greek. It's put in there for the uh, English grammar. This verb, though, is present tense. Whatever the tribulation is, John was a companion of it. It was happening during the time John wrote Revelation. So the characteristic is going to be the tribulation is occurring at the time Revelation is being written. From the same verse, John says, I am your brother and companion in this tribulation. This word companion, here's the Greek word in the transliteration. According to the BibleHub.com Greek interlinear, it means a, a partner, a fellow partaker, one who shares in, or a participant. What's important about that characteristic? The characteristic is John is also participating in this tribulation the same as the saints that he's writing the book to. The third characteristic is the same verse. It's the word tribulation itself. If you look at BibleHub.com, Strong's Concordance, this tribulation is an affliction, a tribulation, a persecution, a trouble, or a distress. The characteristic... Tribulation is an affliction, a persecution, or a distress to the saints that he's writing to. The fourth characteristic comes from Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, in one of the elders, now, with these elders, these are the elders that um, are mentioned in chapter 5. It's not elders as in elders of the church. These are elders as in senior members of heaven. There's 24 of them. And one of the elders answers, saying to me, what are these that are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are those which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The characteristic, the saints from the tribulation are wearing their robes of white, washed in the blood of the Lamb, as written as the writing of Revelation is continuing. You're not going to have to remember all these characteristics. We're going to review them here in just a second. Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. That's what we just got through reading, except we're going to add one verse. For characteristic number number 5, we look at verse 15. It says, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him night and day in His temple. And He that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. What is the characteristic? The characteristic is the saints that came out of the tribulation are in God's presence during the writing of the book of Revelation. Is this paradise? That's that's, That's something for you to think about over the next few weeks. These Christians who died in the tribulation, they're before God right now. They're beneath the altar that is before the throne of God. Is that where paradise is? Good question. Characteristic number six comes from Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those which had been slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Then a white robe was given to each one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was complete. What is the characteristic? The characteristic is the saints before God actually died in the tribulation, and they want their blood avenged against people who are still alive on earth. This is not in the scope of our, of our discussion, unfortunately. But notice something, a little, an interesting characteristic of, this, of these verses we just read. Apparently, when you arrive in eternity, you're not only aware of your surroundings, you're aware of your life as it was on earth. These saints knew. These saints knew well enough that they wanted their blood avenged. And characteristic number seven... Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. It says, and, they, and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. This mark of the beast, that's the 666 that's discussed in chapter 13. What is the characteristic? The characteristic is the saints in the tribulation were not only murdered, they were beheaded because they refused to worship the beast. They were murdered, they were beheaded. Let's skip that chart and go on. Okay, here are the seven characteristics. Let's compare each of these characteristics to various doctrines, shall we? Let's start with premillennialism. Is the premillennialistic doctrine of their tribulation consistent with what the book of Revelation says? Characteristic number one, the tribulation occurred during the writing of Revelation. No, premillennialism says that tribulation is something that's going to happen in the future. Even in the prediction of the end of time, it's always something that's going to happen in the future. Supposedly, when the church goes through their tribulation, that is a sign that the end of times is, is, has arrived. For the afterlife, it's always something that's happening in the future. Second characteristic, John is a participant, a fellow sufferer in this tribulation. There is not a premillennialist on this planet who would ever claim that John is going to have to go through the, the tribulation that premillennialism teaches. According to the premillennialists, if you were, if you recall from last week, if you're not good enough, if you, if you didn't live a good enough life to be, to be raptured, but you didn't live a bad enough life to be tossed into Hades, you're going to go into a third alternative, and that's the tribulation where God is going to meet you face to face and he's going to scrub you clean, punish you a little bit because you didn't live as good as you could have been, but he's going to scrub you clean and get you ready for the thousand year reign and ultimately heaven. There is not a single premillennialist alive who's going to ever claim that John is going to go into eternity with sin on his charge that God's going to have to scrub clean. The third the third the third characteristic, I'm getting my words mixed up. The third characteristic is the tribulation is an affliction, a distress, and a persecution to the saints. Premillennialism, premillennialism does not teach that about their tribulation. They say it is a time of, of cleansing. It is a time to get you clean enough so you can go into the thousand year reign and then ultimately into heaven. It is not a persecution. 
And by the same token, there are no Christians who die in the premillennialistic tribulation, so there's, there's none who have white robes. White robes have nothing to do with premillennialism tribulation. Number five, the saints are in God's presence. In premillennialism, you are in, you are in God's presence in a sense in the tribulation, but not the way the revelation, the book of Revelation says it. book of Revelation says they're actually before the throne of God. In premillennialistic tribulation, you're not in front, of the, in front of the throne of God. God is actually coming down to you to, to clean you up. Tribulation, characteristic number six, the Christians in the tribulation won't be avenged. Not in premillennialism. There is no there is no blood avenging that is taught in premillennialism. The seventh tribulation, tribu- the second tribulation characteristic is the saints are murdered or beheaded. Now, definitely, premillennialism does not teach that that's going to happen in their pre- in their premillennialistic tribulation. So there you have, you have at least seven characteristics of the book of Revelation that do not agree with premillennialism. In fact, the premillennialistic doctrine of the tribulation directly contradicts what Revelation says the tribulation is. Let's compare each of these with the destruction of Jerusalem. Is the tribulation the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, let's look at tribulation number one, characteristic number one. It occurs during the writing of Revelation I have to balk on that one because we don't know when Revelation was written. And due to that, you can't answer that question, yes or no. John is a participant or a fellow sufferer. Not in the destruction of Jerusalem. John's over on the island of Patmos when, when, when Jerusalem is destroyed, most likely. He's not, in, he, he's not part of the, the Jerusalem fight. It is an affliction, a distress, and a persecution. It might be a distress, but it's not a persecution. Not the destruction of Jerusalem. The, 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 the Christians weren't even there. According to Josephus, no Christians even died in the destruction of Jerusalem. Same with, same with the fourth characteristic, no Christians died. Same with five. Same with six. Same with seven. Let's compare it with the persecution of the first century church. If you take the historical record of the first century church, you take chapter chapter 13, chapter 7, and chapter 8, and compare it with history, you're going to find that all seven of these characteristics line up. They are 100% consistent with what history tells us about the persecution of the first century church. Now, is the destruction... Let me rephrase that. Does the I can't even say this right. Does the book of Revelation mention the destruction of Jerusalem? Oh yes, it does. Revelation chapter eleven mentions it very clearly. Is that what the tribulation is? No, it's not, because it is not consistent with with what the the characteristics of the tribulation is. The second part of the proof is actually something I did not know till just a few years ago. There is, a, there is a preacher up in Tennessee that my parents know. He is in southern middle Tennessee. He teaches a class or taught a class on Revelation years ago. And he was teaching that the tribulation was indeed 
the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, trying to think how to how to best describe this. I didn't want to go and drive up there however many times he held his class to see what I, all he was talk, talking about. But I was able to talk to one of his students, and I, I had six or seven hours of one-on-one talking to, to one of his students. And I asked that student specifically, you know, I know, I know what the proof is for the tribulation being the, the persecution of the first century church, but I had never heard what the proof was in the book of Revelation that the tribulation was the destruction of Jerusalem. And I asked him, you know, I haven't had that class. Please tell me what it is. I would like to know what it is. He started at chapter 7 and started going through chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, interpreting each chapter based upon his presupposition that the tribulation was the destruction of Jerusalem. He got to chapter 9. I said, no, 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 no. You, you misunderstood what I said. What are the actual proofs out of the book of Revelation that tell you that the tribulation is the destruction of Jerusalem. He picked up with chapter 10 and kept going. I I just let him go. Fortunately, I did let him keep going because he ran across Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. The destruction of Jerusalem, folks, and the premillennialists both interpret this pretty much the same way. The verse says this. It says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness and into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half time. That's three and a half. From the face of the serpent. So who is the woman? According to the premillennialists and the destruction of Jerusalem, folks, hello. Did I die? Okay. According to them, the woman is the church. Represents the church. And premillennialists say, premillennialists claim that the three and a half years, the time, the times, and half time, is the three and a half years you're going to spend in the premillennialistic tribulation being punished a little bit and God scrubbing you clean to get you ready for the thousand year reign and for heaven. The destruction of Jerusalem, folks, say the three and a half years is actually the time that the Christians are warned, don't be in Jerusalem because the, Jew, the, Roman, the Romans are coming. It's the three and a half years that the church was saved from the civil war between the Zealots and Sicarii and the Jewish revolt that resulted in the Jewish-Roman war. Consistent with history, but is it true? How would you prove that it is true? How would you prove that it's not true? Do you remember this chart? I think you saw it in our first lesson. It's how you go about interpreting verses in the book of Revelation. And I said you first have to be consistent with the surrounding verses, then consistent with chap- with the chapter, then consistent with the themes of Revelation, then consistent with history, and then fifth, you're consistent with the remainder of the Bible. The premillennialist and the destruction of Jerusalem folks interpret this verse as meaning that the woman is the church because they skipped the first three and pick up number four. I mentioned to you, I guess, the first lesson that I would show you an example of where you skip the first three and you pick up number four 
and you're still wrong. Even though you're completely consistent with history, you're completely consistent with the remainder of the Bible, but you're still incorrect. How do you prove something like that? Okay. Chapter 12 is one of my favorite favorite chapters in Revelation. Do you like puzzles? Chapter 12 is the best puzzle in the Bible. It actually is a puzzle. My favorite two types of puzzle, my favorite type of puzzle is a cryptogram. That's where one letter represents another letter, and you have to figure out the patterns of the letter to figure out what the words are. You used to see those in, in newspapers all the time. My second favorite is logic puzzles. That's where you have four people. You've got four or five clues. You have four people, and you have to figure out where they live, what they have for dinner, and the color shirt they're wearing, whatever. Chapter 12 is actually a combination of both of those types of puzzles. That may be why I like it so much. In Revelation chapter 12, we're going to run across four characters. We have a dragon, we have a woman, we have a man-child, and we have something called a remnant. So what we're going to do is we're going to, if I can get my mouse to work here, we're going to read through several verses in chapter 12, and we're going to see if we can solve this puzzle, see if we can figure out who these, who these characters are actually representing. So here we go. Chapter 12, verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Well, that doesn't tell us a whole lot, does it? No, not yet anyway. Let's keep going. There is an interesting clue in in verse 1, but we don't really recognize it until we get on further. Let's go to verse 2, see if that helps us out. And she, the woman... Being with child, cried, travailing in birth, in pain to be delivered. Well, that doesn't help a lot either. Let's keep going. Verse 3. And there appeared another woman, another wonder in heaven, and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. That verse doesn't help a whole lot yet either, but we're at least introduced to these three characters. We know there's a dragon, a woman, and a man-child. Let's see what verse 4 does for us. Verse 4, chapter 12, verse 4. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Okay, we can work with that. We can work with that. What's the first story in the Bible where you had a baby who was going to be murdered, killed by someone in authority. First one I think of is Moses. These, these names may not hold, but let's go ahead and put them in there as placeholders and, and we'll see what happens. Okay? Say, let's say the man-child is Moses. Who's the woman? Will that be his mother? Jochebed. Okay, who was after Moses? Who wanted to kill Moses? Pharaoh. Okay. Like I said, that may not hold, but, but that's a good start. That's good enough for what information we have so far. Okay, let's go to verse 5. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was called up into God and to his throne. Ooh, okay. We can work with that too. Who is said to rule all nations with a rod of iron? 
Revelation chapter 9, verse 15 said, Jesus, you find, you find this symbology all throughout the New Testament. So the man-child, it's got to be Jesus. Okay. Let's keep going. Let's skip down to, to verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent. Oh, I forgot Jesus' mother. Who's Jesus' mother? Mary. I'm not going to circle her name because there's actually a better answer there than Mary. And who was after Jesus, by the way? Who wanted to kill Jesus when he was a baby? Herod. So there, we have, the, we have Herod. Okay, good enough for now. Let's keep going. Verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Okay, the dragon is Satan. We can circle that one. So we know those two are correct. All right. If you skip down to, chapter, to, to verse 17, it says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which, keeping the, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who is the remnant throughout the, the New Testament? Who, who is always the remnant? It's the church. And we have the commandments of God and we have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is going to become even more apparent here in about two seconds. We have no direct proof that I'm aware of in the Bible that Satan was actively trying to kill Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, we know that that Mary and Joseph had to take Jesus down to Egypt for 10 years or so until Herod and, and his group died and then they could come back. Glenn actually mentioned in a sermon not long ago that Mary was well protected by God. Satan probably knew there's no way he he could get to her. So I don't know of any case where Satan actually went after Mary to try to personally kill her. We do know Satan went after Israel over and over again, especially in the Old Testament. It happened time and time again. Israel would would fall away from God. God would put them in captivity. They would pray to God. They would come back home. And that cycle repeated itself. Satan did go after Israel all the time in the Old Testament. And his purpose was to keep the Messiah from coming into the world. So, here's your puzzle. Here's your puzzle solution. Does that look good? For, for the information we have, I think that looks pretty good actually. They can, all be, they can all be substantiated. Now, premillennialists say that the woman is the church instead of Israel. Is that possible? If the woman represents the church... Okay, let me back up. If the woman gave birth to the man-child... And the woman represents the church, and the man-child represents Jesus. That means that means the church gave birth to Jesus. It means the church brought us Jesus. It means the church created Jesus. No, Matthew chapter sixteen, verse eighteen. Jesus said, "Upon this rock I will build my church." Jesus gave birth to the church. Jesus created the church. There is no way that the woman could represent. 
the church. It's not possible. If you say the woman represented the church, you're not only contradicting Matthew, you're also contradicting history. Jesus was here first, not the church. So, what does the Bible say about the afterlife? Actually, it doesn't tell us a whole lot. We have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We know Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. We know the rich man went to a place called Torment. Luke chapter 16, verse, Luke 16 verses 9 through 30, 19 through 31 says that Abraham's bosom was a place of comfort. And we know from 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse, 8, verse 15, when King Saul went to the witch of Endor to call up Samuel, you remember Samuel's first words? He said, why have you disturbed me? So clearly, Abraham's bosom is a peaceful place, a place of comfort and peace. On the cross, Jesus told the thief number one that you will be with me in paradise. We don't know. We aren't told where thief number two went. We assume it's, it's torment, but we are actually given a name. The souls of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of those who have died are there until Judgment Day. And on Judgment Day, that's when we are separated like sheep from goats. We have heaven or we have hell. And really... That's, that's about all the, the, that the Bible tells us about it. There are some extra details that we can learn about these places, but generally, that's the pattern. Now compare this pattern with that pattern. The premillennialists go crazy when it comes to trying to define what the afterlife is. They claim they get all this from the book of Revelation, But we're going to find out in a later lesson, not only do they not get this from Revelation, but they've got the order wrong. The order of this top part, I don't have a... Oh, I've got a little little thing here I I can mark up. This order, this order, and that order. That's not the order. These, These appear in the book of Revelation. So they even have the order wrong. So, what do we have now? We have the tribulation perfectly paralleling the first century Christian persecution according to chapters 1, 6, 7, and 20. It perfectly parallels the first century activities of the Romans. We're going to find that in chapter 13, 14, 16, 17, and 20. The tribulation in Revelation perfectly parallels the physical persecution that takes place We're going to find that in chapters 1, 6, 7, 13, and 20. And it also, this is also interesting, we'll run into this in chapter 13. It also perfectly parallels the emperor worship, Caesar worship. You see these in chapters 13, 14, 16, and 20. It does not parallel the historical record of the destruction of Jerusalem. It does not parallel the premillennialistic doctrine of the tribulation. The last time I taught Revelation here, by the way, this is actually the tenth time I've taught this class. It's the third time I've taught it here at West Huntsville. A guy told me after class one night, he said, I wish you had shown me this outline 
at the beginning of the class instead of waiting to chapter 16 like I did in that class. This is the Revelation's response to the persecution. We find persecution characteristics in chapters 1, 6, 7, and 20. You're going to find history of persecution of the saints in chapters 11, 12, and 13. Chapter 11 refers to the Old Testament. Chapter 12 talks about how it all got started and why it's continuing to this day. And then chapter 13 is going to talk about what's taking place during the writing of the book of Revelation itself. Chapter 8 and 9, we're going to find out that the villain of the book of Revelation is being punished. The one who is dishing out all this persecution. And we're going to find at the end of chapter 9, this is very important, we're going to find at the end of chapter 9 why the villain is being punished. It's because God is wanting some repentance to take place. Several times throughout the book of Revelation, when the villain of the book of Revelation is being punished, God says, and still they did not repent. That phrase, still they did not repent, occurs over and over in the book of Revelation. In chapter 10, God has had enough. Judgment is here. Chapters 14 and 15, we see heaven's response to this judgment taking place. Chapter 16 is the final judgment taking place against the villain. Chapter 17 is is one of the key chapters in this book. That is where the villain of the book of Revelation is actually identified, positively identified. Chapter 18, part of chapter 17 and most of chapter 18, we see what happens to the accomplices. Chapter 18 is going to be one of the more controversial lessons that we're going to be covering because of some implications that chapter 18 gives us. Chapter 19, we have the victory, the saints' victory. Now, I mentioned in lesson one that the book of Revelation is a story, and that is true. It is a story. It is laid out in story form. But I'll go ahead and tell you this up front. When we get towards the end of Revelation, you're going to be able to look back at Revelation, and you're going to discover something. You're going to discover with this outline here that God, what God is actually doing with the book of Revelation, he's actually laying out his case against the villain of the book of Revelation. What you're seeing right here is the anatomy of God's judgment against evil, period. And it's going to be true regardless who the evil is. It's just evil, period. He gives them a chance to repent. He warns them. Eventually, his patience runs out. He says, here's the opportunities you've had, and you still do not repent, and you will be identified. You are the evil one, and punishment will come. He's basically laying out a case like in court. Very interesting, very interesting layout. I was hoping to get to a characteristic of Revelation tonight, but it looks like we're not going to make it. So I'll open the floor for any questions or any comments, preferably comments. (laughs) Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, the Baptist Church are somewhat into premillennialism. They are? Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
okay, I, I did not know that. Thank you. I may have to buff them up in my charts to number three then. Actually, number four. Um, the reference I saw was a friend of mine mentioning the, 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 uh, the rapture. That was, that was my first clue that they even were into premillennialism. I did not realize they were that heavy into it. Thank you. I'll have to adjust my chart. I did, I did not realize that. Next week, we will start a five-part series of characteristic of Revelation. We're going to, we're going to do an interesting little, little piece on Raiders of the Lost Ark. We're going to go looking for the Lost Ark. We're going to look at the theories of where the Lost Ark is, and then we're going to look at Revelation and see what it says, and we're going to find that Revelation actually doesn't say what we think it says on it. So hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get to that next week. That, that's an interesting little study. All right, that is all. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.